0: Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you join me in Matthew chapter 6, we'll get there in just a few moments. We are continuing a series called We Believe, where we are going to be going through... Um, systematic core beliefs. For decades, decades, plural, Christians have focused on, in a circular, I'm not sure, church leaders begin to express felt needs, answers to felt needs, which then turn churchgoers into consumers, which then puts more pressure on continuing the cycle of meeting felt needs, which just... Felt needs is a need that I I feel, that I'm able to diagnose, although the felt need may not be the real need. It may go deeper. So there are lots of things in our life that are felt needs, but there may be core core needs that are underneath that that never get dealt with. And so churches have really begun to make a great deal over felt needs. What it does is it creates... A, an atmosphere where week by week is a separate book that we learn self-help from. It's no different than going to the library and going to the self-help section and pulling books off and reading a book a week and becoming a better person. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a more balanced person. It just means that you go in and say, here's something that I would like to be better at. Here's something I'd like to be better at. So when we leave church, we leave having that one thing or that one idea of, Here's a problem in my life. Here's the cure. Now I'm a better person. The problem with that is it's not really sustainable because it's very selfish and it's not selfless. It's not giving. It's not sustainable in that because it's felt need, it doesn't go to the cores of who we are. And that's what we want to try to do over the next few weeks. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I hope that you will stick it out. It'll be very beneficial for all of us, but it's kind of heavy. It's kind of heavy and it's very, very foundational. A lot of it is not going to be new, but it's going to be something that we need to reacquaint ourselves with. So, churches have turned into immediate, applicable, topical sermons rather than verse-by-verse exposition. And so, we can walk away with some tools in our pocket because someone smarter than me said so, or a teacher told me that this was good information. So we know what it is that we believe, we just don't know why. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous about everything, not just our faith. To know what we believe, but not why, is not much different than cheating off of your neighbor's work in school. You may get the right answer, but you're not a better person as a result. You're not more like Christ as a result. And of course, that is the goal of our life, is to be more like Christ. So what we have done is we've reduced everything that's powerful about Christianity and we've made it palatable, making it very simplistic. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But what that does is it puts information in our heads, which matters for a moment. We can feel good about it for a moment. But unless it trickles down into our spirits, it won't stick for very long. In fact... Most people, a week from now, won't remember what we talked about this week because it doesn't get down into who we really, really are. And Scripture tells us that every individual, every Christian is responsible to study sound doctrine and to learn it for themselves. Never, ever in Scripture are we commanded to listen to a leader without doing our own work to listen to a teacher without doing our own study. In fact, on the other, Paul commends the church at Berea because when he would preach to them, they'd go home and study it to make sure that the Apostle Paul was telling them the truth concerning God's Word. Paul told Timothy, if you put these things, he's talking about these teachings of the apostles, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith." and of the good doctrine that you have followed. He also said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He does not write this to Timothy because Timothy is a pastor, but because Timothy is a believer. Every Christian's responsibility is to rightly handle the word of truth. So this felt need sort of a ministry has created, I would say nationally, because this may not be true internationally, but what it has done over the course of decades is turned churches into arenas, into stage performances, and it's turned Christians into consumers. And it's very dangerous. We've begun to disciple people to follow a brand and not be imitators of Christ. As Blake reminded us last week, to know sound doctrine we must know the Word of God. That is what we live for and that is what we die for. All Scripture is breathed out by God and when you read the words of God, I hear people say, and listen, I don't want to harp. I'm not going to. I've already made my mind up. Do you see how quick that happened? The Word of God is not found in the red letters. It's in the black ones too. Every word, not just the ones Jesus said, every word is the breath of God. And you can, He is so close, you can smell His breath when you read His words, they are God-breathed and they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, which means that there is a time and a season for everything, for correction and for training in righteousness for, to, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. There is no good that can be done that is sustainable apart from the truth of God's Word. If you want your life to matter, it better matter here first. So, Matthew chapter 6. we we're going to hang out there just for a little bit today. I I will say that for some of us, a couple series ago, we worked through uh, the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. uh, And so, we looked at that from our perspective. But today... Not a series, but today we're going to look at it from God's perspective concerning His character and nature, not our own. Okay, so it's, it is going to be a little bit different, but I am asking for some grace and some patience. So the title of the series is We Believe, and so we're going to take the core of that and build it off of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest of all the Christian creeds. In fact, it's been well used globally for over a thousand years. For really two reasons. It has created a global unity. In other words, because of the Apostles' Creed, we can go around the world and every born-again believer has a core set of beliefs and values that we say are essential to the Christian doctrine. It's been used to correct error. There have been times of persecution, certainly in the days of the apostles and just in the first century. There were Christians who were, getting, who were getting murdered in the streets because of their beliefs. And there were lots of beliefs. Heresy has always existed. And so with heresy comes persecution. With persecution, you don't agree with me, I'll kill you. Right? That's what it is. I'm threatened by you, I'm going to kill you. That's the way the world works. And so Christians... In the street, with knives on their back, would you want to know if what it is that you're holding on to strongly is a core belief or just something that a teacher had taught? Yeah, we want to know for sure that these are the things worth dying for. And if they're worth dying for, they're worth living for. And it's much harder to live for these things than it is to die for these things. And so for us, we're not learning what to die for. We're going to go through this series learning what to live for. Why do we matter? Why does, it, why does it matter? Why is doctrine so important? And which doctrines are so important? Now, it's, it's uh, so, so they've also been used to teach people to form their view of God and of the church and of the Trinity and all of those sorts of things. So it's also used to not only correct error, to hold firm a global unity but also to form people into Christ-likeness. And that should be the role of any creed. Now, before we go further, and you will hear me say this again, and certainly for those of you who don't know our church or don't know me, I I am not preaching the Apostles' Creed. I'm using it as an outline to preach the doctrines of the Scripture, of the Apostles' teaching, which the early church devoted themselves to. Okay, so don't go out of here. And I know that we, I know that we do it. We, we compare notes with other co-workers or whatever churches. Well, our pastor's preaching the Apostles' Creed. That is not what we're doing, okay? We're just using it as an outline. Creeds have no authority unto themselves. Zero authority. The Apostles' Creed is not important because it was written by and from the Apostles' teaching. It has authority because it derives its authority from the truth of God's Word Creeds point outside of themselves to an ultimate authority, which is the Word of God. Let me use this as an illustration. Just like the moon may look like it has light, it may look like it has heat, it has neither. It is a mere reflection of the sun, which is the light and which is the heat. A creed is the same way. The creed reflects, but it has no light, it has no power, it has no breath. It just sits there. The authority that it may have comes as a reflection of the Son of the Word of God. A creed also helps us with symmetry. It keeps things in balance, harmony. It'll help us shape us as more fully formed followers of Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of false truths that circulate. When we hear one preacher over here say something, it's opinion, and another preacher say something that's an opinion, and this one over here says something, and we try to say, how can we find some balance to that? How can we find out? And we end up making everything so simple, so watered down, that it has not the Word of God, which means it does not have the breath of God, which means it does not have the life of God, and that's what most churches have turned into. So before we go any further, I want to make another statement about creeds. Christians do not believe in incantations. What I mean by that is if we recite the Apostles' Creed and you memorize it, it does not make you a Christian. It will not put luck in your pocket. It does not forgive sins. It will not help you get that promotion at work. And it will not make that vampire or werewolf disappear. That is not how it works. The Apostles' Creed begins with two words. I'm going to separate those away from Scripture, although I'm going to use Scripture here too. But it it begins with, I believe. And that is so fundamental. Those are so important. They were intentionally created to be placed right here. I believe, not I know. Now, I want to stop for a moment and say, there are several times that Paul says, I know, I know, I know. I know this, I know this. And this is the Greek word gnosis, which means to have experiential knowledge. It's to have a backstory with it, it's to have experienced it in some way and to have some agreement to it. And so it would be in Greek, English doesn't have that word. In Greek, though, if the creed was written in Greek, it would use the same word it's experiential knowledge. It's not a head of information. This knowledge is experiential that affects behavior. And so what I would say about that, and I think it's very important going forward because I may even have to mention this a little bit along the way. You can know things in your mind, but it doesn't necessarily change the way you behave. So there's lots of things that we know. I mean, you know to brush your teeth But there's a lot of people that doesn't change the way they behave. That's funny. You laugh there. You know to drive the speed limit, but it doesn't necessarily change the way you behave, right? Knowledge does not necessarily change you. Beliefs do. When it trickles from your brain down into your heart, heart is where we believe and belief is where behavior resides. So when we say, I believe, we are making an experiential announcement, pledging an allegiance that we have experienced and our behavior follows suit. In other words, when we begin to say, I believe, it's very personal, I believe, we are saying, for this reason, I live my life and take my breath. It is a very, very heavy announcement. A very heavy creed. A very heavy belief. Now it is the greatest form of rebellion and the greatest form of allegiance. What do I mean by that? When we stand together ever and we sing our songs and we make our announcement. Man, I, I tell you what it, it empowers me. I sit up here and sometimes I just don't sing. I want to just listen because it, it just encourages me so much to know that I'm not alone. I love to hear your voice collectively. Thank you. I'm getting some of it back. I've been out of week. I'm getting it back. I love to hear our voice as we sing. I love the power of we exalt you. Oh, I, I exalt the Lord, but I love we exalt you. It's collective And it stands in the face of a materialistic, selfish world when we say, when everybody else is pledging allegiance to the things of this world, Lord, we exalt you. That's powerful. And the creeds will help us do that. The creeds put us all in unity together and we turn our backs against the things of this world and say, for this reason I live my life. And this is why I live this way. But it's the greatest form of allegiance too because we gather so much encouragement from each other knowing that we're not standing alone. We're together. Now again, I'm not putting creeds on any sort of a pedestal. It's just a simple core statement that puts us all in unity together. But we will be going from the Word of God. Okay, so what I would like for you to do, we're going to risk a moment of awkward. We're all going to be awkward together. This is terrible. Some of you are going to say, I cannot believe that he's making us do this. Uh, Believe me, it's awkward for everybody. I'll be the leader. I'm already standing. We're going to learn the Apostles' Creed Because I want you to be able to have this litany of beliefs. And then we're going to go into Scripture and we're going to find why we believe those things. And it's going to begin to impact our everyday counsel, our everyday life, our everyday way of thinking, okay? So we're going to do that with respect. We're going to take it seriously. But I'm going to ask you, for those of you who will, if you can stand, if you will do that, and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. Now, I want to give you a little bit of... Uh, instruction. Part of the power of this is listening to the person beside you. Okay? If you're not saying the same words as the person beside you, you're not doing it right. Okay? So, to do this, collect... I mean, we don't sing songs that way. (laughs) Well, some of us. But... We're not going to do that this way. We're going to be on point, okay? I'm not grading you for accuracy, but it's very important for us to hear the we in this, okay? Ready? So you just repeat. Say it as I'm saying it. Don't repeat. Say it as I'm saying it. I will lead us. Ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. and He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. It's important to know that the Christian view of the Godhead... That God is three distinct persons and yet is one. You will notice as we read through the creed that that does mention the Trinity. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus, His begotten. I believe in the Spirit. So we know that those things have been taught for thousands of years. There is one God. One God. But it, He manifests Himself in three distinct personalities. It is hard for us to understand, and sometimes you use illustrations like a clover or the relationship of a mother and a woman and a wife, and we say, well, there's three you know, three offices, but there's not three offices. There are three essences of the same person. This is how God works. It's in such perfect unity and will and heart and purpose and drive and motivation that we can't understand the perfection of the Trinity, but we believe in the Trinity, there are many, many heresies that have been taught about God's character and nature that sometimes He's an old man and sometimes He's on a cross and sometimes He's just invisible floating through the air. Sometimes He lives in my heart. Sometimes He's walking on earth. Sometimes He's doing all these sorts of things. But the Christians don't believe that. Christians never have. Christians have a really clear understanding of how the Trinity works in perfect union, where Jesus is in the water and the Father speaks from heaven with a sounding voice This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And the dove descends as the Holy Spirit upon the whole scene. This is proof that there is symmetry in the Spirit, excuse me, in the Trinity and how the Godhead works. So when we say God, we're talking about the Godhead. All three. When in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1, God said, God, Elohim. He, Elohim, the "I am" in Hebrew is the equivalent of plural, E-S in English. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but we won't use plural because it's one person. In three, essences. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth but we find out pretty quickly that it was the father who willed it to be and then when he made man he said to himself it is not his will that any would perish but that all would come to repentance right now i'm not going to take a lot of time to explain a lot of this because i have done that in the past and i am sure to do it in the next few weeks But we find out also in Colossians chapter 1 that it was Jesus Christ that all things were made by Him and for Him and through Him all things subsist or consist or are held together. Nothing exists that wasn't made by the Son. And it is the Spirit of God that brings things to life energizes things in the hebrews what it means hovered over the face of the deep that's the spirit of god energized life into being god the father spoke his will into the earth and god the son created life and formed him out of the dust of the earth and god the spirit breathed into adam the breath of life and he became a living being that's the Trinity. That's what we believe. So when we say we believe or I believe God, we're talking about the three persons of the Godhood. Now, if, you, if you're talking about, and you've heard people say the old man upstairs, please don't be so crass as to say that. My God is not the old man upstairs. He's not, he's not any of those things. If you can't use what Scripture declares him as, probably you shouldn't speak of him. Okay, just want to make sure. Sometimes people put plexiglass up here and it's soundproof, and I can't ever tell what weeks it's up here and what weeks it's not. So I just want to make sure that uh, I'm not wasting your time. Okay, so we're talking about the Trinity. We're talking about how three operate as one. And so the Father is devoted to holiness, wholeness, complete perfection. And the Father, I mean the Son, rather Jesus in the flesh, is bringing all glory and honor to the Father. He glorifies the Father, and the Spirit glorifies the Son. This is how the Trinity works together in perfect unity. One without the other doesn't make sense. You can't say what would happen with one third of the Trinity. It wouldn't matter. I mean, there is there's none of them anymore. They're perfect. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But we say the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We're talking collectively God. God. Trinity is so difficult to explain, yet it is so simple for us. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God. Perfection. Perfection. Working under the same purpose, direction, meaning, completeness, Together are these three essences of God. So today we're going to look at it from the Father's perspective. Very specific things that I want us to be able to see. And that is going to begin in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. Jesus said, Pray then like this. being two things simultaneously. And I want you to write these things down because they are going to begin to craft our formation and correct any of our error. Number one, God is infinitely powerful. Infinitely powerful. There is not one thing that God cannot do. God does not even subject Himself to the natural laws that He created. His laws were not created for Him. They were created for us. There's nothing that is beyond God's control, nothing that is beyond God's ability. God is sovereign over every thought, every second, every moment, and even beyond. Infinitely powerful. But He is simultaneously, intensely personal. Intensely personal. So let's go back and look at the beginning of the prayer. Our Father. Now, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient. Near East where this was written in the first century especially for pagan people to call whomever they claimed as their god to also be their father. Their origin, out of him they dwell. People of Rome would consider, uh, in Greece too, but Zeus to be their father. And then from there, uh, the Roman emperor, if they needed somebody with skin on, they would say that the emperor was their father. In fact, many people don't realize that the early Christians in the first century were killed in the streets and the arenas because the Romans believed them to be atheists. Because they denied the existence of their God and claimed allegiance in the one that doesn't exist. So they were considered to be the atheists. And they would not worship These gods as their fathers. If you remember giving allegiance to Zeus, man, Zeus is the kind of daddy you really don't want to play with, right? He's he's waiting for you to mess up. He's sitting up there on his throne with a lightning bolt, just kind of just knowing you're going to do it, just waiting for you to do it. And then as soon as you act like it, boom, zap. That's not what Jesus is using here. He introduces the concept of the Father. In fact, Jesus uses a very specific Greek word or Aramaic, uh, Abba. I'm sure you've heard of the word Abba. It actually implies a nurturing side of a father which the Near East was not familiar with. To say that God was a nurturer, a a compassionate God, a God that you could relate to, a God that cares, a God that is invested and involved in a relationship... This is a God that is foreign to them. So when Jesus tells them, they're looking at... These are Jews. These are men who grew up in the temple. And they say to Jesus, We see something special about your relationship with God the Father. We want to learn how to have a relationship with Him. How do you talk to Him? Jesus said, Oh, well, when you talk to Him, start by recognizing who He is. He's he's the Father that you can get in His lap... And tell him about your day. And he listens while he's not on his phone. That might have been a little bit of a jab. I'll just leave it. But not only is he a Abba, Father, but he is infinitely powerful. So what you get here is our Father who is relatable approachable, compassionate, caring, nurturing, invested, inviting, welcoming. He's the kind of Father that when you walk into the throne room and He is your Father, He immediately turns His head and smiles and welcomes you into His presence. That's the kind of Father we all long for. But Jesus doesn't say, when you pray, just know that, oh, Daddy's going to love you. Now, there's a specific place where he resides. Now, God is everywhere all at once. We know that because we read the Old Testament. God is omnipresent, he is everywhere. There's not a place that you can go and not be in the presence of God. But he reigns from heaven. The throne room is in another place from heaven. That's where he sits and he rules and he reigns. So your father isn't just that loving, cuddly daddy that you can get up in his lap. He's got a throne room that he reigns from and everything is beneath him. Everything is beneath him. Our father in heaven. He's not bound to his laws. There is nothing, nothing above him to declare to him or demand anything from him. Looks where it goes next. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here's another example of our Father being infinitely powerful throughout Scripture and really throughout human existence and history. The name of our God is hallowed and revered. What it means is that God's name has a lot of weight to it. You know, this hallowed be your name isn't don't cuss. Right. Even Exodus chapter twenty is not a. Com- the command isn't. Don't cuss. Keep your mouth clean. It is be careful when you bear the sacredness of the nature of God. You better take care because His name has weight to it. Now, if you need verses of Scripture about cussing, there's plenty more of those plenty more about keeping your mouth clean and keeping your heart clean and out of the out of the heart comes the mouth and all of these sorts of things we need to be very very careful about what we say but if we're if we're going to reduce those individual words that every culture has their own set of and we miss the fact that God's name and his nature and his presence His whole persona has such weight to it that you had better. Hallowed be your name means you'd better be prepared when you lift the weight of that name. As you carry it around, you'd better be incredibly careful and realize how sacred this is. There is nothing more sacred than His name. That's that's power. Now in the Old Testament, you couldn't even look at Him. I mean, you set His persona aside. You set His personality aside. I mean, His presence aside. You can't even bear under the weight of His name. That's a powerful, powerful Father. So, how often in our life do we just flippantly bring up the sacred? We just bumble into the throne room and, Oh, your favorite child's here. Now listen, when you get ready to deal with the things of God, you'd better, you'd better be incredibly careful. When you start talking about the things of God, the doctrines of God, when you start talking about the sacredness of creation, and I have failed so many times. It's not that I don't take it seriously. It's just that sometimes you forget how hallowed it is. He is not like us. And we keep trying to water Him down to make Him more palatable for everybody. We try to make Him more approachable. We try to make Him more reasonable and try to make Him, well, our best friend. But we need to never forget that there is such a weight to carrying the sacred. I mean, I, I just think of all of the different times in the Old Testament where men would just reasonably forget the sacred and dust. How <sighs> would be your name? That's why the, in the Old Testament he says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, don't take his name lightly. I mean, we come up with nicknames. We come up with all sorts of euphemisms so that we don't say that name. Act like that's okay. Listen, when you're handling the things of God, we need to be careful to do it God's way. He is worthy of special, unique honor. From there, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the thing about the kingdom of God. When we first saw Jesus in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, when we saw Him, this was the inauguration of the kingdom of God. When Jesus starts living, He starts walking, He starts teaching, He starts telling people about the kingdom. And He tells them from time to time, the kingdom now is and is coming, and you are near to the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Which means that there is a world that is existing that is exactly happening at the same time as this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. Now, if you want to live with both feet on this ground, you're welcome to do that. But this place is not the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is in another realm. And you can't live in that realm apart from Jesus Christ. So when we first saw Jesus in the flesh was the first time we were inaugurated with the kingdom of God. We got an idea of seeing what that was going to look like. When Jesus looks at the water and says, Peace, be still, boom. When Jesus speaks to dead things and says, Get up, and boom. Wow, this is the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Now, it's not like that everywhere. But when Jesus comes again, and He is coming again, at any moment, by the way, at any moment, we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Any moment could be the very last one. He is coming. And when He does, it'll be the consummation of the kingdom of God. Which means that it'll be the final fulfillment and we will all experience the kingdom together. Where the lion will lie down with the lamb. Where deserts will give birth to rose petals. This is an incredible kingdom, a millennial kingdom, an eternal kingdom that will begin to exist, the consummation. And so we are praying to Him who is able to make old things pass away and all things become new. Your kingdom come and Your will be done on earth because You are infinitely powerful, seated in heaven. And Lord, we want to, come, we want to see Your reign come to earth and we give Him the ability to live His nature and character out through us. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, we're shifting gears here just a second because we move from God being infinitely powerful to being intimately personal. This verse or statement is not saying, God, give me all I want. I'm just going to say it. It's a little bit bold, but there's not a loving father who would give their children everything they want. That's not love. That's actually harm. Why? Because children are incredibly immature. What they want in one moment is not what they want in the next moment. And mature parents recognize that. Jesus, in the book of Luke, says, What father, if a child asks for bread, would give him a stone? Right? And if God, if you, who are evil parents, know how to give good gifts, what about your Father, who in heaven, who is infinitely powerful, knows how to give good gifts? So when you say, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Give me what I need Not what I want, because what I want might hurt me. You're really placing yourself under His complete sovereign authority and you're making a declaration that you want what He wants for you more than you want what you want for yourself. It's only a selfish, unloving father who's trying to get rid of their children by saying yes all the time. Loving fathers don't say yes to their children Loving Father, say, nope. And you can pout all you want. I'll be the killjoy because I know that the thing that you want right now is not good for you. So you can pout, you can cry, you can get upset, you can why me, all you want to do. I'll absorb your little poutiness. I'll absorb your, I can't believe you. I'll take it so that you can grow. You can grow to be healthy. Our daily bread is not that God gives you everything you want it's that he gives you what you actually need he says look I love you and this is what I want to be formed in you you know the verse of scripture that says that we should train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he won't depart from it you know that verse well so in the way he should go Oftentimes, it gets misunderstood in that train up a child and hold them to the line. This is force them into this straight, narrow path. That's, that may be good, but that's not what the verse is saying. What the verse is saying in Hebrew is that a caring, loving, personal father will look at their children and see what they need in their life. To see the direction, to pray over them so much to know what God wants to do in their life and to train them, the Hebrew says, according to their bent. So as they are bending one way or the other, the father's responsibility or the parent's responsibility is to make sure that the children stay within the boundaries of where God wants them to live. And when they are old, they will have formed the way God wants them to form. That's exactly the way God forms us. It's the way He loves us. It's what He's saying right here. When we surrender ourselves to the daily provisions of God and we're satisfied with God's personal, His intimate care for us, He has a personal plan for you. He knows just like you care for your own children and your parents cared for you. He knows exactly what it is that you need to be at exactly the right moment you need to be it. And that's what you're going to get for the day is what gets you to the end of the day. To be like Jesus Christ. And for us to want anything other than that is to reject His power. And we pendulum shift like this. Oh, when we, want, when we want, we appeal to that power. But when we need... It's like kids. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 30, he said, Two things, this is the wisest man that's ever lived. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Why? Lest I be fool and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God? So, what Solomon is saying is there's two things. Wisdom has taught him to want two things or not want two things. I don't want to be fool. I don't want to have everything I want because if I have everything I want, I won't recognize that you are my provider. I might forget you. Boy, material possessions have a way of doing that. When you don't need God for daily provision, he kind of forget that he's intimately personal. But Lord, I don't want to be hungry either because if I'm hungry, I might steal. I might cheat. I might get upset enough to complain about my life, which does damage to your character and nature. So, Lord, if I could just ask two things. I don't want everything I want. I don't want you to give me everything that I want. But I don't want to be hungry. You know what that word is called? Satisfaction. Contentment. Being formed according to our bent. Trusting God as our provider because He loves us so much. And He's powerful enough to have a personal plan for your life. From there it says, and by the way, I mean, I don't want to be full. I don't want to be hungry. What is that except give us this day our daily bread? From there it says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. How many, how many of you grew up memorizing this? Most of us who grew up in church memorized this at some point. Forgive us our debts. How many of you memorize it? Forgive us our trespasses. Anybody? Any, how many of you remembered it? Forgive us our sins. Some, some translations say sins. Yeah. So uh, the, the beauty of English is so, and I love English. It's in fact, I'm, I love it so much. I am loyal to it alone. <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe a little Greek. But I will tell you, English is really, really lazy when it comes to certain words. Greek isn't lazy on any words. So this word here, give us or forgive us our trespasses, our sins, our debts. It includes all of them. This, this word includes all of those things. It's a very, very active word. It's any action that misses the mark. It includes internal sins. It includes external sins. It includes acts, uh, sins of... Commission, sins of omission. Those things that we do that we know are wrong. Those things that we didn't do that we knew we should have. It includes all of those things that keep us from the glory of God. It is included here. So Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. You realize that your sin, your sin will always have collateral damage. Now, I know that there are things that you think you don't want anybody to ever know about. Those thoughts will become actions. Actions will become habits. You know that old thing. Habits become character. And so when you begin to see things in your life that do not line up with Jesus Christ... That is the Lord Himself being so intimately personal with you. He's tapping you on the shoulder and saying, this is an area that you need to get corrected. When you recognize that there is a thought, that there is an action, that there is a desire that does not please Jesus Christ, that is the Lord loving you so personally so personally, there is no temptation but such as common to man. But the Lord will give you a way of escape. If you find yourself in the middle of a sin, it's because you have bypassed every off-ramp to get there. Because God loves you so much, He knows the fingerprint of your sin type. And He taps you on the shoulder every time you are reminded That this isn't right. This isn't right. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be thinking this. I shouldn't be saying this. Tap, 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 tap. That's a loving God that does that. And if you won't listen, listen to me closely, if you won't listen to that gentle tap of a loving Father, you will deal with a powerful God who will not only tap on your shoulder, He will expose you to the world. Because He loves you too much to leave you in the dark. He loves you too much to leave you in the harm. That is an intimate, personal God who loves through your sin but does not want to leave you in it. That is love. That is not judgment. It will be judgment. So what that concludes us into is to think that God, and I know that you've heard this, it didn't used to be so, brothers and sisters, where we hear all the time, God is a God of love. God is a God of love. Listen. God is a God of love, but not at the expense of His wrath. We have pendulum shifted back to where we... I know you've heard people say, I've heard people say, I can't believe that that a loving God would... Whatever that is that you don't agree that God did. I can't believe that a loving God... Which says that a loving God would do it this way. Which means that we know more about being a loving God than the loving God knows about being the loving God. Because I disagree with Him. He shouldn't have let that thing happen to me. Listen, you cannot, you cannot have love apart from wrath. It cannot exist. Love cannot exist. Let me give you an illustration. I love... My family, my wife and my kids. I love them. I would die for them, but I live for them. I love them. And because of that love, you've never seen wrath until you've tried to harm one of them. I assure you. Okay? Right? Because love exists, wrath exists that makes sense? So, God is a God of love. But He is also a God of wrath. In fact, the Bible says that the wrath of God abides on the heads of sons of disobedience. It is Jesus' blood that was spilled on the cross for us that removes the wrath of God from our heads. God is a God of wrath on the other side of Jesus. You can have His wrath now or you can have His wrath later. But his wrath will be satisfied, and Jesus Christ satisfied it. If we're not careful, we turn God into this light hearted, all oh, it's okay, it's no big deal kind of a God. Your sin has collateral damage. What I mean by that is your sin can only be forgiven not by your confession. Your sin is not even forgiven because of your repentance. Your sin is not forgiven because of your nagging guilt. Your sin is forgiven because of the precious blood spilt by Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's why the wrath of God is settled. Not because you feel bad about your sin. It's a gift of God that He gives us repentance. And repentance trickles from up here down into our hearts and when it gets into our hearts, it begins to affect our behavior. That's why we must pray for God to give us repentance because we cannot muster it on our own. We don't have it within us. So, forgive us our debts, our sins. Forgive us of our trans- transgressions, our trespasses, as we forgive. Listen, this is great because, I mean, it's it's just helping me, maybe a little bit. Um, When I'm satisfied that my identity is in Jesus Christ, I mean, I know that He has forgiven me. I know that I can, and I don't want to be too familiar here, but I know that I can approach Him and He is welcoming me into His presence and I know that He is satisfied with me, and I know that He has a direction for me, and I know that He is parenting me, that He allows me to sit in His lap and tell Him about my day, and He listens to me, when I know that that is my current kingdom existence, you have no power over me. You say whatever you want to say about me. You can say whatever you want to say. You can do whatever you want to do. You can live however you want to live. You have no power here because I am completely caught up in my powerful God and my personal God. So, as long as I know I'm forgiven by Him, I'm not holding your sin against you. Forgive me as I forgive one another. It's very powerful, by the way, because if I'm not satisfied in my relationship with Christ and I don't find my identity in Him and He's not enough and I disagree with the purpose and plan that He has for my life, I'm waiting for you to offend me. And I've got a list a mile long of problems that I have with each and every one of you. Because I'm so dissatisfied with who I am. It makes me feel better to be angry at everybody. But if I'm satisfied in Christ, bygones be bygones. Now you can be mad at me if you want. That's not my plan. I know I have failed every one of you at some point or another. And if I haven't yet, I will. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Jesus Christ has forgiven me. Forgive me. I'm just a human being. But let me know it. Don't hold it against me, because I want there to be a melting of unity together. Because we believe in God the Father. Let that be where our agreement comes, and our relationship to an intimately powerful, infinitely powerful, and intimately personal God. Almost done. Give me just a couple more minutes, and we'll be done. <laughs> I, I want to just. I want to just remind you of, of this uh, um, we're talking about this powerful powerful father and and he says you know lead us not into temptation you know the, the, the Bible promises our loving intensely personal infinitely powerful God has always given us a way out right we always have a way out which means that you you can be holy unless you don't want to you can either deal with the loving embrace of a powerful God and an intimately personal God or you can face the wrath of his power but you'll never be tempted beyond what you can bear and then the prayer ends with his infinite power again and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil how many of you memorized it as evil how many of you memorized it as deliver us from the evil one yeah, So you can tell which churches and which translations people use over the years. Again, this is a unique Greek word which implies both because all evil comes from the evil one. Right? So it's the same. Now, <laughs> here's what I love about the Bible when it comes to God and Satan and angels and demons. And, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at society, I'm going to try to get this real quick. If you look at society, Satan's got a lot of power. He's a pretty mean guy, right? He's, he's, he's just evil. And he does whatever he wants to do, whatever he wants to do, and just hope, and just hope that, that, that he's never in a room with you and God's not there too, or some angels or something, because he could just do whatever he wants. Did you know that that is unparalleled in Scripture? You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. He is not an evil, mean dog with a muzzle on, even in Scripture, right? You know that. I mean, you know what's going to happen. You, you, How many of you love scary movies? I don't watch them like I used to because I just don't. But of you, be honest enough. So you always know that when I don't, I don't watch demon movies ever. I've seen too much. Uh, so when you watch those movies and they call the Catholic priest to come in, you know he's dead. He's the first guy dead, right? I mean, he's going to sprinkle some stuff on somebody and he's going to say, cross compels you and and he's going to die. The head's going to spin and stuff's going to come out and he's dead. Everybody knows the Christian guy on the scene has less power than the demonic. Scripture never portrays that. In fact, the greatest battle of all time, the battle of Armageddon, where every evil presence the world has ever known is going to be a mounted assault against God all of God's people and the powerful personal presence of God. And when Jesus rides in, here's how the battle goes. You ready? I mean, every evil imaginable. And Jesus says, I am. And everything bows down. That's the worst that it gets. That's the most power we ever see Satan have in all of Scripture. Listen, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Deliver us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. Listen, the only reason you would ever give in to evil is because you want it. And you want it because you're not wrapped up in his infinite power and his personal presence in your life. Well, let me just close by saying this, and I think we need to hear this. We typically pendulum shift like this in our life we we can imagine a god if you're like most people and i don't mean that as an indictment but you grow up in a society where and we have certainly because of all the way from the industrial revolution all the way through the world wars and all of that but dad's not at home dad's not involved he's a man's man he's a don't bother me kid he's a you know he's too busy for you he's never satisfied he's never pleased and so our biggest problem with understanding god's character and nature is misunderstanding our own fathers maybe he wasn't even there maybe he was he was absent maybe he was emotionally unavailable, as they say today. Whatever the case may be, we have a hard time. Listen, I can tell you, you can say, is God personally, is He uh, infinitely powerful? Absolutely. That man speaks and the world stops. There's not a thing that my daddy can't do if he wants to do. I get that. And so most of our faith is a matter of checklists. I don't want to see a show of hands. But your Christian life becomes checklist. Don't disappoint dad. Don't disappoint dad. Don't disappoint dad. Don't make dad mad. Wait till dad gets home. Dad, 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 dad. I'm so scared of my dad. Scared to mess up. Scared to do anything. Prayer life is terrible because when I stand in his presence, all he does is just scolds me, scolds me, scolds me. It's never enough no matter what I do. So we're kind of fearful of that infinitely powerful God. But we can understand Him for sure. And when we think about our Father who art in heaven, we go, "Whoa, boy, I know the way to that. But to think about a God who is compassionate and caring, well, maybe we shift on the other side of it though and we just feel, hey, Jesus is my homeboy. Hey, me and God, we got our own thing. Oh, we just enjoy, I just... Listen, if that's your version of God, you don't know Him. Because you can't have a relationship with Him like that. He is infinitely powerful. He's not like you. For those, for those who have a hard time thinking that they can please the Father and that the Father truly loves them unconditionally, you need to spend some time on the Scriptures that remind you that God takes delight in you. He loves to give you grace. He loves to summon you into His presence. He loves to wrap you up in His arms. And He loves, loves to hear how your day went. Loves it. In fact, it's why, it's why He's there. It's a relationship with us. For those who have a difficult time understanding God's sacredness and the weight, you need to spend some time reading the last three chapters of Job and maybe some of Romans chapter 8 and you need to remind yourself that you and God do not have a special thing. He's not like you. He's both of those things simultaneously. He's the God that when we approach Him, and I'm, I'm trying my best to learn, Lord to be able to approach Him in prayer and bow the knee and to have Him lift your head. We believe in God the Father, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. He is infinitely powerful. He's intimately personal. And when we wake up in the morning and we don't know how we're going to make it through the day, and there's a the bottom falls out in our relationship, or falls out in our finances, or falls out in our life emotionally, or whatever the case may be. You need to remember, He is. There's not one thing, that's not beneath Him. He is the provider. He is the nurturer. He is the path maker. And He summons you into His lap. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts this morning. I pray that you would tap on our shoulder gently and remind us of our sin. I pray you would also remind us that if we don't respond to that tap on the shoulder, that there's a megaphone to come. Be sure our sin will find us out. But that's your love. So I pray, Lord, that we would uh, make a decision to follow you all of our days. to Be obedient to you be surrendered to you because you are powerful and we should we should prepare ourselves to carry that weight when we go off into the world and we (laughs) act like we know anything we declare your excellencies as ministers of reconciliation it is our responsibility to carry the name lord may we never do so flippantly may we never do so as a joke forgive us where we've done that lord Help us to live holy lives. Help us to live in symmetry between your power and your presence. May you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.